Well, good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you today. The question of how to get from A to B is one of the basic issues of life. Only a fool would set out on a journey without a clue about to how to get to their destination. You'll recall the old joke, how do you get to London? Answer, well, if I wanted to get to London, I wouldn't start from here. The trouble is, here is where we do have to start from in life. As a generation, we've become dependent on sat-nav and navigation apps downloaded onto our smartphones. Unfortunately, these are not entirely reliable when it comes to Devon. I've often found myself driving up a narrow lane, supposedly on an A road, only to discover that it's got grass growing up the middle. It's why I keep a map on the back seat in the car in case I end up marooned in a farmyard. Compare maps from different centuries and you can see how a landscape has changed, roads have been altered, or a landmark has been lost. From a map's design and projection, you can also tell what was important to those who created it. The wonderful medieval Mappa Mundi that hangs in Hereford Cathedral has Jerusalem at its centre, whereas the map on the classroom wall of my primary school had Great Britain firmly in the centre with half the world coloured pink for good measure. The sun never sets on the British Empire. Every map is an interpretation of reality, reflecting not only geography, but political realities as well. A map reflects the values of the mapmaker and the experience of travellers is recorded in its signs and symbols. To undertake a journey with a map is to rely on their cumulative wisdom. One of the greatest journeys of all time occurred 3,300 years ago when a group of liberated slaves known as the Habiru or Hebrews left Egypt for the so-called promised land. Theirs was not just a grueling physical journey of hundreds of miles, but a spiritual journey that has shaped Jewish and Christian self-understanding ever since. The experience was a mixture of courage, disappointment, doubt, and faith. In the evocative phrase of Nelson Mandela, it was a long walk to freedom. It's not easy to reconstruct the route of Canaan. Scholars have flirted with different possibilities, but what no map can show is the deeper journey that forged the slaves' self-identity as the chosen people of God. The narrative is spread across the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, with the book of Deuteronomy containing a collection of speeches and laws under the umbrella of covenant. You can read the narrative straightforwardly as the record of a great historic event, you can read it ethnographically as the story of the transformation of a loose coalition of tribes into a nation. You can also read it as a spiritual map, 
a description of the personal journey we are invited to make by God to bring us safely home. In these Lent talks, I want to explore this idea of homecoming and what it might mean for us. I've chosen five episodes from the Exodus story to help you map your own experience of God. And today I begin where the book of Exodus begins, with captivity and the escape from Egypt. Genesis, you'll remember, concludes with the death of Joseph, the favorite of Pharaoh. Joseph enjoyed a position of power and influence, and the Israelites prospered. But then, as it says in verse 8 of the opening chapter of Exodus, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And historians identify this new pharaoh as Ramesses II. As we've observed in the United States, a change in leadership is significant. It's already apparent that President Biden has very different priorities from President Trump. In the same way, 3,000 years ago, factors beyond the control of the Israelites altered their lives with the accession of a new pharaoh. Their skills were no longer valued, and they were progressively excluded and then enslaved. Time and again, minorities are scapegoated, particularly if they're immigrants and economically successful. Jealousy, the green-eyed monster, lies dormant in the hearts of us all and can easily be awoken from its slumbers. So let's listen as Laura Armstrong reads to us part of the opening chapter of Exodus and we hear of a step change in the oppression of the Hebrews. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill them. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Shifra and Pua are hardly household names. These two brave, intensely practical women are buried in the narrative, <clears throat> meriting only a few lines of text over against the exhaustive account of Moses's leadership. But don't miss the significance that we know their names. This is a relatively rare occurrence in the Old Testament, which is a narrative recorded by men in which male experience is primary and where men are invariably the initiators of the action. The truth is, without these tenacious midwives, the exodus would never have happened. 
It's why Shifra and Puah have a special place in the family album of God's saints, along with Hagar and Sarah and Rachel and Ruth and Naomi. Traditionally, a midwife uses her hands rather than instruments or tools to assist at a birth. She uses them to wipe the sweat from a mother's forehead, to hold the birth giver's hand, and finally to guide, steady, and receive the baby. Her role is to encourage and reassure, for which she needs both empathy and loving detachment. A midwife knows how to interpret the different phases of a woman's labor, the desolation of seemingly unmanageable pain and nausea to be signs of breakthrough. The midwife sees what the mother cannot see. And in this, we've got a neglected image for pastoral work and the ministry of spiritual direction as we accompany others on their journey, enabling them to bring new things to birth. Over the last couple of months, I've really valued sharing in your deanery chapters. And in one meeting, one of you described your ministry during the pandemic as a cross between being a palliative care nurse and a midwife. Watching old forms of church life withering and dying and rejoicing as new things come to birth. Perhaps that's been your experience too. As you reflect on the place of Shifra and Pua in the Exodus narrative, you may wish to thank God for those who accompanied you on your journey and enabled you to bring new things to birth. With Shifra and Pua, we stand at the threshold of the story of an enslaved people being set free. But it is also a story about how difficult it is to manage freedom. Tragically, enslaved people are often reluctant to accept freedom, even when it's offered them. They simply don't know what to do with it. As biblical commentators observe, Moses has to battle not only against Pharaoh, but against his fellow Israelites. They're suspicious of him when he first makes an appearance and they blame him when the conditions of their servitude worsen. Part of their suspicion may have been because they saw him as a collaborator in an oppressive regime. After all, he'd been brought up in the home of Pharaoh's daughter. I don't know whether you've ever seen the footage from the end of the Second World War of the liberation of Vichy, France, but it's, it's absolutely horrific. Men who had traded with the Nazis were strung up from lampposts in the street. Women who'd slept with German soldiers had their heads shaved and they were tarred and feathered. And I often wonder if something like this isn't lying behind the Exodus narrative. Why should the Israelites trust this man, Moses? After all, isn't he a collaborator? Isn't he a murderer? When you think about it, Moses is one of the most unlikely of heroes, which is why I love the scriptures so much. The Bible is so real and its characters three-dimensional. 
God chooses flawed individuals to work his good purposes for humanity. So there's hope, even for you and me. Let's now listen as John Fisher reads to us from chapter five, and we hear how things progress. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews, who has revealed himself to us, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he will fall upon us with pestilence or sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labours. Pharaoh continued, now they are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves but you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. So the taskmasters and supervisors of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you find it, but your work will not be lessened in the least. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble of straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, the same daily assignment as when you were given straw. And the supervisors of the Israelites, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why did you not finish the required quantity, quantity of bricks yesterday and today as you did before? Then the Israelite supervisors came to Pharaoh and cried, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Look how your servants are beaten. You are unjust to your own people. He said, you are lazy, lazy. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, 
but you shall still deliver the same number of bricks. The Israelite supervisors saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you shall not lessen your daily number of bricks. As they left Pharaoh, they came upon Moses and Aaron, who were waiting to meet them. They said to them, the Lord look upon you and judge. You have brought us into bad odour with Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned again to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has mistreated this people, and you have done nothing at all to deliver your people. Exodus. X out of Hodos, the way. The Greek word by which this book is known literally means the way out. When we're trapped, how do we get out? What's our exit strategy? More significantly, do we want a way out? The psychologists tell us that the best tool in the armory of an oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. If you can convince someone that their subjection is not only normal, but in their best interests, then you can control them. Throughout history, slaves and slave owners have assumed that the master-slave relationship is the default position. One set of people decides what another set of people can think, say, and do. And breaking this control mechanism is very difficult. But no earthly group has the right to define what another group can be or think. And here's a theological question. If human beings can't be told who they are by others, why is it any better to be told who they are by God? Where is the good news of exchanging one sort of slavery for another sort of slavery? This is the charge leveled against us Christians by those who see obedience to God as another form of tyranny. Real liberation comes, also our atheist friends assert, when we've got the courage to throw off the shackles of religion. Now, there's plausibility in this argument, but only if we forget the kind of God whom we've met in Genesis, a God who's not a tyrant, but who is rather the life that animates the universe. Which is why the Exodus story really begins back in chapter three, when Moses meets this God in the miracle of the burning bush. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. 
Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, what, it is, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am, announces the Lord to Moses from the burning bush. Consciously or unconsciously, St. Paul will echo these words in the first letter to the Corinthians. By the grace of God, I am who I am. And his grace to me has not been in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Discovering who we are is a lifelong journey. Vocation is not an external calling. It's an internal growing up into our true selves. A friend of mine came across this anonymous quotation, which may speak to you as it did to me. I know I am not what I should be. I know I am not what I will be. But I thank God I'm not what I was. Perhaps you know the story of Rabbi, Mesh Rabbi Meshulam Zusia of Hanipoli in Ukraine, the great 19th century Torah scholar, used to encourage his congregation to stop comparing themselves with other people who may be more attractive, more intelligent, more gifted, or just nicer people. In the coming world, he said, they will ask me not, why were you not the great Abraham or Moses, but why were you not Zosia? We should stop trying to be somebody else. We should concentrate on being 
whoever we are, confident in God's love for us. By the grace of God, I am who I am. And you are who you are. The quest for self-knowledge is universal and lifelong, as Paul observes when writing to the Romans, I don't understand my own actions, I don't do what I want, and I do the very thing that I hate. Romans chapter 7 verse 15. Frustration, poor self-control, powerlessness, and a longing for self-understanding are things we all experience. In the Christian tradition, however, self-exploration is subsumed by a more profound quest, the search for God. It's not who we are, but who God is that is all important. And we discover who we are through our relationship with God. As the incarnation confirms, God is no tyrant and we're not puppets. So when I say that we can only become truly ourselves in relation to God, I'm not, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about an exercise of power. It's more like saying, if you want to swim, then you need to understand the sea. God is the element in which we live and move and have our being. This Lent, we need to re-immerse ourselves in the rhythm of the ocean that is God. When God sets us free, it isn't for some paradise of endless consumer choice. That isn't the promised land. Real freedom is the freedom of the swimmer. And the clue to swimming is trust. We have to take our foot off the bottom. And so to our closing prayers. Lord God, our Redeemer, who heard the cry of your people and sent your servant Moses to lead them out of slavery, free us from the tyranny of sin and death, and by the leading of your spirit, bring us to our promised land. God of our pilgrimage, you have willed that the gate of mercy should stand open for those who trust in you. Look upon us with your favour, that we who follow the path of your will may never wander from the way of life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you all very much. God bless you today and throughout Lent. And I look forward to seeing you again next week when we think about the crossing of the Red Sea.